High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. There's a fantasy in argument in lean in or girl boss style, you know, corporate feminism that says once you have women in charge of your company, then your company is feminist, right? Your capitalist reforms can start and end with who has the corner offices, right? Who's populating the executive suite. And so that's not even reforming capitalism. <laughs> that's just trying to, to, to save it. So says Kyla Schuler. Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and Faculty Director of the Women's Global Health Leadership Certificate Program at Rutgers University. Today, we dive into her heady new book, The Trouble with White Women, A Counter-History of Feminism, which takes on the numerous ways in which feminism, so narrowly framed around the issues of white women, has in turn marginalized the experiences of women of color for hundreds of years. And the title has double meaning, because even though white feminism has been problematic, it's also painted white women into a corner, left wondering how we got here. There have always been multiple kinds of feminism, Schuler says, a self-serving version dominated by white women and an intersectional version dominated by women of color. White feminism, the mainstream feminist ideology, positions women as redeemers a salvific force whose mere presence in positions of power is enough to redeem that same power entirely. In sharp contrast, Schuler notes, intersectional feminism is an account of power, a place to interrogate the ways in which gender, sexuality, race, ability, and climate precarity coalesce to shape our lives. Only when we acknowledge these multiple simultaneous identities and come together across identity and power positions will we form a strong enough political block to make enduring structural change? Okay, let's get to our conversation. Well, your book is amazing. It was hard, which I'm sure is feedback that you're getting. Yeah. Not so not so hard academically. I thought you made really complex ideas quite accessible, but like at the intro I had to steal myself during the intro 
for a lashing, but I actually uh-huh. felt like it was ultimately <laughs> so illuminating because as a fellow white woman, I think that, and I read a lot about this and really try to understand where we are in the context of history and mm-hmm. why so many of our heroes have proven to be problematic or far more complicated than we would like them to be. And I thought you did such a beautiful job of elevating, clarifying in those stories sort of where things had gone sideways. And then it was Mm -hmm. such a joy to read about all the women of color who have not gotten the spotlight in the same way, but were, were certainly there and and making an effort to change society in a different way. So congratulations. I really Thank you so much. I think it's it's such a powerful, powerful book. So let's just start at the beginning. And, you know, I think that in the within the title, The Trouble with White Women and this idea of feminism that we abide by now or how it's defined culturally and where it's gone really wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that the title, The Trouble with White Women, I like it because I think it gets at, it speaks out two kinds of trouble, right? Like there's the trouble that white women post in framing feminism centrally around their own issues, but it's mm-hmm. also about the trouble that white women face. I think for so long, feminism has been understood in a dominant frame as the fight for equality between the sexes full stop, right? As feminism means you support gender equality and you support women. And that's the end of the story. Um, But for almost 200 years, there's been so many women pushing back and saying, if we only look at gender, we're actually marginalizing the experiences of a, a huge portion of women and also uh, also men and other people besides women who can also benefit from feminist justice. But I think for so long, the mainstream voices in feminism set the standard of what was enjoyed by bourgeois white men as mm-hmm. the standard to which they aspired. Um, and that is sort of the trouble that white women themselves face because they turn to their immediate peers, right? Or someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's often considered the founder of US feminism. And she grew up in the nicest house in town. Her father was a Supreme Court justice for the state of New York, as well as had been in US Congress and boasted of Mayflower blood and Revolutionary War blood. And so her standard was, why can't I have what my father enjoys? And what my brother enjoys. So they set the, the standards of the elite white men as what they wanted to fight for themselves. And so in that way, they were both facing a trouble of setting elites as their standard, and then also posing a trouble to other women for whom the problem was not that they were not enjoying the benefits that Katie experienced, but the fact that she grew up with three enslaved people in her own house in upstate New York. Yet she considered herself as the only girl child, the biggest victim in that house, because her view was only centering around people like her father, not around people like the three enslaved people in her own house. 
Right. No, I think it's so clarifying because I think a lot of people don't know the history, right? And so they venerate these heroes and or then they real they feel like they're kryptonite, they can't touch them without somehow condemning themselves and then yeah. we don't actually explore or understand what was happening and what the context was of the time. But she's as you say such a perfect example of an ideology that exists today, which is not necessarily wrong, but it is very incomplete, which you get at throughout the book, this idea that if women are in charge, the world will be better. And that Mm -hmm. might be true, (laughs) you know, like, sure, yes, let's have representation. Let's find that sort of equity that seems like table stakes. But you're still making this argument, like just by the presence of women, one that society will somehow reform by the mere presence of this moralizing, civilizing presence, right? And that also all boats will rise. That if white women go first, we will just make sure to take care of it for everyone else, which Mm -hmm. has obviously not proven proven to be true through history. (laughs) And it's, it's just not enough. As you write, white feminism promises that women's full participation in white dominated society and politics will only improve their own social position. Thanks to their supposedly innate superior morality, their leadership will redeem society itself. I'm really glad to hear you emphasize that because to me, that's ultimately the most insidious element of white feminism. This idea that when white women rise to the top, they will be a kind of salvific force, right? The kind of saviors of the nation. And in a contemporary manifestation, like something like Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, you know, she poses the idea that once we have more women CEOs, then we'll have better companies, a better kind of, of capitalism. And I don't think it's as obvious as an element of white feminism as others, because it is is less explicitly about putting uh, white women's interests front and center. And yet it's one of the most insidious effects because it draws on this really long history of the idea of women, but meaning especially white women, as the the angels of the house, right? The civilizing force, the domesticators, the people whose job it is, is to clean up the dirty work of business and politics happening allegedly around them, but not of them. And it's a very seductive force that once we put women in charge, we'll cleanse capitalism, we'll cleanse the nation state, but it just lets us turn away from the violence that can get perpetuated even when women are in charge. Right. Instead of establishing a new paradigm for business, a new way of being in the world, which is what I think we all are so desperate to see. I thought this this quote was so brilliant about Lean In. You write, Lean In, and I just want to also compliment you because I, I think throughout the book, you did an incredible job of holding the polarities inherent in these people, like someone like Sheryl Sandberg, of course, like she's done a lot of great things. She's also not a perfect human and she's working in a a problematic culture and monetizing a problematic company, right? So Mm -hmm. I think you did a great job of not condemning and rather excavating. So just wanted to to say that. Like you don't, it's not a book that makes you feel dirty where you're like, oh, this feels... I don't know. I thought it was very fair. Because the, the lure of purity politics is strong. Yes, <laughs> And I, I tried to resist it <laughs> as much as I could. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, so you write, Lean In has been widely crit- critiqued for focusing narrowly on the concerns of heterosexual married corporate women. But the fundamental problem with Lean In is not its failure to be inclusive. 
Inclusivity within capitalism is a fool's errand. Its core problem is that it presents capitalism as a deliverer of equality when capitalism is actually a chief engine of social harm. So I thought that was just such a, a perfect encapsulation of like how distracted we are by trying to reform a broken system rather than focusing on. And yeah, of course, we need market economies. We need capital, you know, we need capitalism in some variation or some form, but like it needs to be married with it has become very extreme. I think mm-hmm. we can all agree that when CEOs are in penis-shaped rockets heading to space <laughs> while the workers of that company can't afford to live, like we are desperately off course. The planet burns. While and while the planet burns. Rocket fuel exactly. is just going up in the air. Yeah. And even, you know, what's so problematic about white feminism is that at worst, it's not even trying to reform capitalism, right? Like it wants to redeem it. There's a fantasy mm. in argument in lean in or girl boss style, you know, corporate feminism that says once you have women in charge of your company, then your company is feminist, right? Your capitalist reforms can start and end with who has the corner offices, right? Who's populating the executive suite? And so that's not even reforming capitalism. <laughs> that's just trying right. to, to to save it. Yes. And to to sort of just by virtue of being there suggest that it could be something different. I think it's such a power that's such a powerful construct I think for all of us, particularly as we think about how to do things better, right? And sometimes, you know, it's the Audre Lord, the master's tools will not dismantle that quote. No, no, dismantle no, the master's yeah. <laughs> the master's house, which I know everyone, you know, has certainly it's a, a one of the most famous quotes probably of the last five years, even though it's significantly older. So I think what we should do is sort of march through the book a little bit, okay. just because these the pairings that you do are so wonderful. And there are so many characters from history, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, et cetera, who like I have a relatively glancing understanding of. So should we start? I know we talked a little bit about Stanton, so and we didn't talk about Francis Harper, but should we start there? Or should we go to Stowe and Harriet Jacobs? Um, if you have a question about Harper, I'm happy to stop there. Or we can go to Jacobs and Stowe, and I can tie Harper in as Yeah, let's as do that. Let's up. do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, which people obviously know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and sort of this white woman writing a tale about slavery that the the mythology is that it changed the minds of the president, right? Mm-hmm. Like that she is <laughs> and it's a complicated it's a complicated concept. Will you unpack that for us? Just sort of this idea, this like uh, this the saviorism inherent in it, the goodness that she did do, yeah. the problematic parts of it. And then let's talk a little bit about Harriet Jacobs. Yeah. You know, this book was so fun to research and write because looking in the details of how it has been that there have been these two forms of feminism, white feminism, intersectional feminism, tracking sometimes parallel, sometimes in conjunction and often in tension for the last 180 years uh, was so fascinating and showed me how huge issues of structural politics actually often come down to individual decision, individual people 
making decisions about how they want to proceed in their life and their work. And so it was so fun to get to immerse myself in narrative and story that actually has tremendous implication on the politics of up to our moment. And Harriet Beecher Stowe is a great example. You know, she famously wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, published in 1852, to help um, so, so gain support for the anti-slavery cause. Specifically, she wanted to use her skill as a, as a writer who specialized in writing to white women audiences and writing a kind of tear-jerking, emotion-eliciting, sentimental style. And she thought, I want to get white women of the North to cry along with the slave and to have sympathy with the slave, to turn public opinion against slavery. Now, on the one hand, that's a really admirable goal. Right. And even though the Civil War was about to break out nine years later, in the 1850s, slavery was becoming more entrenched in the land. It wasn't gradually receding. It was getting further extended. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 deputized any person in the North to declare a black person an escaped slave and to arrest them. Slavery was no, you could now be pursued as a, as a escaped enslaved person in New York City. Um, and in light of this, she wanted to rally white women uh, toward the cause. Um, but the problem with that particular style of literature that she specialized in, sentimentalism, which we still have to this day in a lot of our Hollywood movies, is that it asks the viewer to cry for the subject in a way that is ultimately much more interested in growing and bolstering the emotional skill and emotional empathy of the person doing the crying than it is in actually a kind of true solidarity or alliance with the person who's suffering. The enslaved person becomes an object of pity and the, per and the reader gets to be a magnanimous person who's, who's growing her political and, emotion and emotional influence. And that was, out, you know, that's absolutely true at the level of the genre. And as a scholar, my specialty is 19th century sentimental literature. So I'm very familiar with this dynamic that writing to, to elicit tears actually reinforces the power of the reader over the marginalized subject. But what was so interesting to me when I did the research is to realize how much that those abstract ideological views actually shaped her personal decisions and how she proceeded to work with the anti-slavery cause. Because there was um, a, a now very famous writer, Harriet Jacobs, who had self-emancipated, escaping from enslavement in North Carolina, by hiding in a tiny, tiny attic crawl space for seven full years to escape her, her enslaver. And it was a space that was just seven feet by nine feet and only three feet tall. And after she spent seven years hiding out before she could get a, a passage to the north un, unobserved, she became really active in the anti-slavery cause and wanted to write her, wanted, wanted her story to be told. She wanted, you know, so many people said, slavery is actually good for slaves because they couldn't possibly take care of themselves. And she said, here I have this really dramatic story of the extent that I was willing to go to to escape because slavery was so awful for me and for my children. And I had such a history of sexual abuse under slavery that I was willing to do anything to escape. So she reaches out to Harriet Beecher Stowe via her employer and says, hey, you know, could you, would you be willing to write my story for me? You're the 
biggest writer in America right now. And Harriet Beecher Stowe writes back to the employer and says, great, I love this story. It's, you know, sensational that she was hidden in an attic for seven years. And I'm going to use this story in my next book. And Harriet Beecher Stowe had to write, I mean, Harriet Jacobs had to write back multiple times and say, please, no, I'm not asking you to, to take my story. I'm asking if you'll work with me to tell my story together. And Harriet Beecher Stowe never replied. And meanwhile, she gave many other interviews and wrote in letters. Why won't this slave speak for themselves? Why do I have to do everything for them? Mm. She raised tens of thousands of dollars and said, I'm raising this money in part to start schools for black children. But those schools never came about. Instead, her family and her extended family kind of lived off the, the funds that she raised from Uncle Tom's Cabin and from other sources. And all the while, she was complaining about having to do everything for enslaved people because she really saw herself as the spokesperson who had ownership over the cause. And that just yeah. doubles down on that dynamic of the person who cries for <laughs> someone who becomes an object where she saw herself as the center of that story. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting too, though, how, you know, I think, so you write about how Martin Delaney, radical Garrisonian physician, novelist, and black nationalist. Oh, because Frederick Douglass supported Stowe in terms of the importance of this book and this narrative. And Delaney said th that she was, you know, attracting all the pecuni pecuniary advantages of anti-slavery mm. writing, thereby depriving Black authors of opportunity. And then he, this is Delaney's quote, no enterprise, institution, or anything else should be commenced for us or our general benefit without first consulting us. And then I loved Frederick Douglass's response, which is, where will he find us, quote, to consult with? Through what organization or what channel can such consulting be carried on? How many in this case constitutes us? Yeah, It's really interesting. And I'm sure you'll hear this when your book comes out too, because there's, there's a lot of antagonism around you're a white woman, professor. You know, there's so much conversation. There's so much. I just interviewed Loretta Ross and she was talking about the circular firing squad. And so it's really hard to parse that line, right? Of what's, what's, your moral authority, what's mine, where, mm -hmm. where are we overstepping? Yeah. How do you, like, how do you parse that? Yeah, I love that debate between Douglas and Delaney also, because it seems like it could be ripped right off Twitter today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? So um, it's very modern. It's very modern, right? And I think that for me, I parse it as, as looking out for that place of speaking for someone. That whenever a white person or a person in a marginalized group imagines that they're speaking for the voiceless, right, or speaking for a group for a group that has less access or power than their identity, that's where you really get in trouble. That's where you are actually actively silencing someone else and maybe even drawing on those people as raw resources to fuel your own rise and career. Yeah. I, but I think if you understand it as a, a conversation to which you are a listener and a, you know, and a student, and after a certain amount of time, perhaps can get invited to that conversation um, as an ally and as someone working in coalition with other people, then it's a different dynamic. 
Um, right. And and that can mean both, you know, in terms of who you're reading, in terms of activism, in terms of the kinds of conversations you're in, uh, and understanding yourself to be not not inventing something, not saying something that's that's not that's brand new, but being a a, a participant in a conversation that you have earned your right to join and I do and and need to stay within the boundaries of of, of best practices and and good ethics of solidarity and alliance. But I think also yeah. what's so inspiring about intersectional feminism is that it says, you know, our best advantage onto power is not from those white women who want to have the CEO positions that their fathers or brothers have, but those people who have been at the bottom of multiple structures of power. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't then say these are the only people who have a place in intersectional feminism. It says we need to adopt the vantage and learn the vantage of the most marginalized because they have the most acute and wide ranging analysis of power. But we need to all work in coalition together across different identity positions and across different power positions to be able to form a strong enough political block to actually make structural change happen. So intersectional feminism yeah. is that invitation if you are if if you've done the work to be able to join the conversation and not try to take over the conversation with your tears or with your 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 you know overly loud analysis. Yeah. No, I don't want to jump ahead to to Polly Murray and Frieden, but I think, you know, because I think people can trip around this idea of intersectional feminism. And I think you really astutely pick that apart in a way of explaining that it's not in of itself an identity. It is the presence of multiple identities simultaneously. And there's this great section where white feminist theory, <laughs> white <laughs> feminist theorists like Stanton posed equivalences between groups of people in which one allegedly stands in for the other. The woman becomes the slave. Murray, however, this is Polly Murray, interrogated multiple structures of power and showed how they worked in tandem. She didn't position the women's movement as a separate autonomous campaign from other social movements as Betty Friedan did. The students, this is a Betty Friedan quote from 2000, the students were doing it. The blacks were doing it. It was time for us. These formations insist on distinct parallel identities that never meet, leaving black women structural impossibilities. Yeah. Which is so powerful. It's like such an important reframe, I think, for people who are like, I don't quite understand. It's like that that is such a good summary. Thank you. Yeah. And that's something that I come to also as a student of intersectional feminism. You know, one of the mm -hmm. first important black feminist anthologies from the early 1980s was called All the Men Are Black, All the Women Are White, But Some of Us Are Brave. <laughs> You know, pointing exactly to that of like, where are black women in this formation yeah. of where there's blackness, it's always male and womanhood that's always white, then where are black women? And intersectionality really helps point us to that analysis of, of power of looking at uh, intersecting identities. But I'm glad you're emphasizing how, how the book reminds us as intersectional feminists have reminded us that ultimately intersectionality is not about identity. Right. You like to say I'm an intersectional person doesn't actually really make sense in the terms intersectional feminism. Instead, intersectional feminism is an account of power. Like my, my friend and colleague Brittany Cooper says really clearly, intersectionality is not about identity. 
it's an analysis of power and looking at how gender, sexuality, race, ability, climate precarity, all these different factors of life shape our lives simultaneously. I am a Brittany Cooper fan for life. So thank you for bringing her up. I think her book, and I'm assuming there are more coming, is so phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Haven't, haven't read it. And funny, like she's such a great narrator and and teacher. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PTT. All right, let's talk about Alice Fletcher, mm-hmm. who I feel like is, it's hard, it's hard to find the good parts of Alice Fletcher. <laughs> I'm just going to offer in terms of the the harm that she the the havoc that she wreaked on native communities across yeah. the country and the harm that she perpetuated or perpetrated really and perpetuated and then Zit Kalashaw did I say that probably yeah really is wrong. it is it Kalashaw Zit Kalashaw yeah so tell us about tell us about Fletcher. Yeah. You know, Alice Fletcher, I think is one of the more tragic cases here for exactly, you know, reasons you point to is that her intentions were excellent, but the effects of her work were detrimental. So Mm -hmm. Alice Fletcher is probably the least known of the white feminists in this book because she wasn't, is most famous as a anthropologist. She was the best known and best respected woman scientist of the last quarter of the 19th century. 
So she had a huge platform in anthropology and her focus was studying indigenous tribes in the US, especially in the, in the Midwest, Lakota tribes and Omaha tribes in Nebraska. And she actually really did do some important revolutions within anthropology of had a position of some kind of respect toward, toward tribes. She did not find them utterly abominable like, like many people of her time did, but she did see them as backwards and needing to be saved. And that is where she really got in trouble because she joined her scholarship with activism. And the first big project she took on was working as the first paid recruiter of the first off-reservation native boarding school in the U.S. And these boarding schools are now becoming much better known, especially after finding mass graves at boarding schools in Canada over the last six months. Uh, but they were deliberate projects that continued for 70, 80 years in the U.S. and Canada to remove native children from their families and tribes for at least three years at a time in order to completely eradicate their attachment to their parents, to their communities, and to their land. And their uh, language, right? And their language, right? They were not only forbidden from speaking their native languages, but beaten when they spoke their native languages. And punishment could be as severe as being, for, for various infractions, punishment could be as severe as getting locked in solitary confinement for three days. And at this school that Alice Fletcher recruited for the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, infamously the first one of these, you know, it was it was built in old army barracks. So that feeling that they were having a military kind of education and punishment was not abstract. <laughs> they were being locked yeah. up in military institutions. And oh, and and many, you know, the the this became a major movement across the US to civilize the so-called uncivilized. Right. And to save Native Americans by in the in the famous phrase or infamous phrase of the founder of Carlisle, he said, kill the Indian to save the man. And mm. white women had a special role in this because education was that tool for killing the Indian to save the man. And white women became the army of teachers in these off-reservation off boarding schools. And so some of the women who first had major positions in U.S. government actually like Estelle Reed came through the off-reservation boarding school system. And for Alice mm. Fletcher, her work with native tribes and her work reforming native tribes and trying to save them by civilizing them and stripping them of indigenous ways and inculcating Protestant white habits shot her up to the top of her profession. And she, you know, she ended up writing, she ended up being the key voice in the most detrimental legislation dealing with indigenous people in U.S. history, or that might not quite be true, but most, let's say most um, detrimental in the 19th to early 20th centuries, yeah. which was the Dawes Act, which explicitly removed, explicitly broke up native land and turned it into private allotments and resulted in native people losing two thirds of their land over the next 50 years. And she was the single most influential voice in that legislation. And she said over and over again, we need to divide the land for them. 
They are our mm. children. They are our ward. We are like the mothers and the parents that need to guide them and teach them how to behave. So it's a really strong example of that dynamic where yeah. white women literally turned the lives and suffering of the more marginalized into fuel to bolster their own rise to the top. Yeah. And it's so ironic, right? Because th these are her words. These are this. This is Alice Fletcher writing about Lakota and Omaha women. The Indian woman considers herself quite independent. She controls her labor, her possessions, and follows her own inclinations if she has sufficient determination. She is not necessarily the slave of the man. And then she talks about them, th these women, as she is the conserver of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sort of completely opposite to this idea of a woman who needs to be saved, right? A ward or a child. Yeah. So it's so tragic in terms of how that has sort of ricocheted and can, is something that obviously we're continuing to try to unwind or understand today. With tremendous consequences, right? Like one of her examples of, of how indigenous people were too backward and needed to be rescued and retrained was that they, that too much of their land was surplus, she said, that, that it's just being wasted. They're not turning it into industry. And you contrast it with, with a writer like Zakala Shah, who writes these incredibly moving accounts about what it was like to be at the boarding school and have her own culture literally stripped out of her body, right? Mm -hmm. And she talks about the, the actual material sensory trauma of showing up and being and not being able to speak her language, of having her, her hair cut, of being forced to wear these, these military-like uniforms. And then she also talks about her spiritual connection to the land, right? And that that was also what was totally broken. For Fletcher and white settlers, land was raw resource to be maximized. And if you fast forward 120 years later, we are desperate to learn ways of living with land that doesn't destroy it because the future of the planet depends on it. And some of the best parts of the Green New Deal, for example, turn to indigenous sources of knowledge of ways of living with land, right? Or in California, there's been a fight for decades to get um, indigenous fire leaders, especially in the Northern tribes like the Klamath, to work with the forest department because they have developed for millennia practices of small scale burn that prevent large scale burn. But that very idea of living with land instead mm -hmm. of battering it into submission is what Fletcher called backward and primitive. And what now we realize the, our literal survival depends on it. Yeah. I thought too, the way that you talked about Zitkala, Zitkala Shaw, her efforts to sort of, she, she took Dakota and Sioux legends and then turned them into theatrical productions, right? Which were yeah. not necessarily an authentic rendering of the dance. I thought that discussion was also really important because I, I interviewed Joy Harjo as the first guest of this nice. podcast, which was amazing. And she was talking too about sort of the broken tropes, the worn out tropes about Native peoples and how 
for some people believe that Native peoples don't exist and others sort of have this one singular image of how they are and they want them to so desperately to subscribe to that, right? Yeah. And instead of understanding these things like any American quote unquote culture, that these are living and breathing cultures that evolve and change over time. So I loved this quote, if you don't mind. It's not yours, it's but it's in your book. Laguna Pueblo feminist Paula Gunn Allen underscores eradicating culture and imagination is a central part of settler colonialism. And then this is her quote. The wars of imperial conquest have been fought within the bodies, minds, and hearts of the people of the earth for dominion over them. I think this is the reason traditional say we must remember our origins, our cultures, our histories, our mothers and grandmothers. For without the memory, which implies continuance rather than nostalgia, we are doomed to engulfment. I love that idea. This like the nostalgia bug that threatens to sort of turn our country inside out. This fantasy about how things used to be versus continuance and staying connected to the way things are, but letting them evolve and change over time. <laughs> Someone else has an opinion. <laughs> this is my, my cat Dot has really strong feelings about it. But I loved that. And I, I, I think it's such an important point to resist this urge to make to make cultures exist in tropes, yeah. which I, is so strong, right? And even with this, like, the stewardship of lands and taking this broken toy that we've, we've, you know, we've broken the toy and now we're bringing it back to, to indigenous people and asking them to, to fix it, mm-hmm. which must, is frustrating, essential, I agree. And also sort of this, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but this desire to sort of also restrict people to this culture of identity and like yeah. that, that that's who they are so, solely. It's a different kind of stereotyping that's also yeah. really problematic. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one thing that racial tropes do is they pick one key role for groups and say, you must have this role. And that role gets updated over time, right? So if you look at what that role is in 1850 versus now, it's going to shift. But it's pretty pervasive at that moment. And so for right now, for example, for indigenous people, we say you are a kind of fossilized relic of the past, which is not that unlike the view in Alice Fletcher's time. Then Alice Fletcher's peers said, and you need to vanish and recede into the past. And now we sort of say, oh, and you're a prism of a kind of purity of the past. But it's a mm-hmm. similar cage right, that, you, that Native people can only be a kind of oracle of another way of life, right? And then mm-hmm. for Black women, the, the often, especially among liberals, the view is now, like, you are superwoman. You are capable of everything. We are going to task you with fixing all our problems and glorify you for doing it, but also put upon you unreasonable demands. And yeah. while, the, while both of those things seem complementary, they are in fact very restrictive tropes that keep people yeah. locked into racially defined positions. Into racially defined positions and, and separate, sort yeah. of, again, this like, this, this uh, using intersectionality as identity. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, 
my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. So I want to make sure that we have time to talk about Margaret Sanger, because obviously it is so essential, particularly in this moment of time, as sort of the perfect example of a woman who did a tremendous amount of good for women and was also very problematic, right? And Mm. said some things, whether she intended them or not, in the way that they were that 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 have come to sort of destroy her reputation and now everyone is eager to sort of sanitize our history from her presence and you know she was certainly into eugenics which to her was not a racial concept it was a much wider concept yep. also problematic but this idea that anyone who's mentally infirm or not ideal in some way queer, homosexual, it could be poor, crazy, needed to not be, you know, was she promoted essentially sterilization, but also recognized and was a massive champion for this idea that women needed to be in control of their own reproductive futures. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Sanger. <laughs> and and she had a lot of help, right? Like as you write about, you know, Teddy Roosevelt spreading fears of race suicide and this idea that white wealthy women were going to be outbred by poor women if we and we needed to get our shit together and start better baby comp- competitions and fitter family contests and what a fucked up time i know right and those ideas were so pervasive that as i mentioned you know scholars have shown that even 
W.E.B. Du Bois in fundraising for the NAACP's anti-lynching campaign had better baby contests within black families and raised tens mm -hmm. of thousands of dollars of the most fit black families to fund super important work like anti-lynching. And, you know, this Sanger especially brings us to a seeming paradox, right? Because there has been debate for a while about what to do with Sanger's seeming support of eugenics. And actually until relatively recently, a lot of people wanted to say she wasn't actually really supportive of eugenics. Like we've really turned a page in the last few years of how many people are willing to say, when she says here <laughs> that birth control is a method of eugenics, like maybe we should take her seriously. When she says that over and over again for a period of two decades. But it's been hard to reconcile because she's rightly so associated with embrace a woman's autonomy, right? And one of the first people, especially uh, white women, to, to embrace women's sexuality in public mm -hmm. and say women deserve to enjoy their sexual being, which in 1915 was a huge deal, right? The first time she printed that, her paper got put out of business by the state, right? She violated too many laws, specifically the Comstock law, by even printing something like that. So for often we, you know, people have held up this idea and said, but she was a feminist in support of autonomy, so we can't really take the eugenics part seriously. But the reality is that she was a eugenic feminist. And mm -hmm. when we refuse to acknowledge the fact that there have always been multiple kinds of feminism, a self-serving version dominated by white women and an intersectional version dominated by women of color, then a eugenic feminist is an impossibility because we think of feminism as being about women's equality. So how could it exist? But if we recognize that white feminism had been around for 60, 70, 80 years at that point, it starts to make more sense that for her, she has a really divided idea of women's equality. There is autonomy for the so-called fit and reproductive limitation for the so-called unfit. And what's important to recognize is how huge the category unfit was for yeah. her and other period, people of her period, of her time. You know, it is alcoholic, the diseased, you know, the poor, the queer, the criminal, the disabled, mentally and physically. So for her, she said repeatedly, one quarter of the world's population is not fit to reproduce. And even when she launched her first national birth control organization, one of the three goals was to curtail the reproduction of the unfit. So she had a really sharply divided idea of who reproductive self-determination was for. The thing is, is it wasn't especially broken down along racial lines. Unfit, like certainly racialized groups are gonna be deemed by white people to be more unfit than, than white groups, for sure. But in other ways, she actually was a, a relative anti-racist for her time. And so some of the pushback now against Sanger says we can't endorse her because she was a racist, actually unfortunately misapprehends the extent of eugenics in, the, in that period, yeah. right? Because the other figure I look it. at, yeah. right, the other figure I look at in that period, Dr. Dorothy Farabee, who is a black physician and supported birth control along a whole host of other reproductive measures for poor women, including childcare, right? Making it 
easier for poor women to raise children in safe conditions. You know, she also supported eugenics. Du Bois was a big supporter of eugenics, though both of them completely opposed sterilization. So unfortunately, the reality is that eugenics was totally pervasive, and it wasn't especially along racist lines as much as around disability lines. But it's a strange defense to make of Sanger because it's, it's not a defense exactly as much as to clarify how much we need to be on the lookout for ideas of disability hierarchy, even within Black radicals of this period. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because it's it's a good example of, and understandably, it's 1915, right, of people operating within sort of the patriarchal capitalistic system of the time and using and just replacing who the authority is, right? So it's one thing for... Margaret Sanger, in a modern day, we would say, we want people who feel unfit, like teenagers, right? Or people who recognize that they cannot support a child or who do not want to be pregnant or have been vic- you know, a victim of rape. All of the reasons that we want to empower them to make the- their own moral choice for whatever is right for them and mm-hmm. is their life, their body to govern. We might not agree with it. Doesn't matter. So in that way, you know, you, there's a difference between being like, you can, we're giving you the power to determine whether you are fit or desire Absolutely. to have a child yeah. as a reframe rather than how it was, which was, we will determine who is fit and we will decide whether we think you are worthy of having a baby, which is obviously <laughs> really dark. Absolutely, really dark. Yeah, right? And like the way they, they did it, the way Sanger did it, is an echo of Harriet Beecher Stowe 70 years right. earlier, right? I'm in charge. I will determine your path. Yes. And she wasn't, you know, like it's called the Negro Project, right? Where they were bringing birth control. And that was Farabee bringing birth control to Southern Black women? Or yeah, well, it was it was especially yeah. Sanger. It was a Planned Parenthood project, but Farabee and Du Bois were on the advisory board and supported it. And it was not a plan for extermination. It like was not there, a plan for that... extermination. Yeah, but yeah. if you Google Margaret Sanger right now, some of the very first returns will be about how she wanted to exterminate Black people. And this project is is some of the the key evidence. But it's just not true. Like Sanger has been, um, it's an opportunistic pro-life campaign to smear Sanger. I've spent two weeks in the Planned Parenthood archives looking through every piece of paper that exists from that project, as have other scholars. And we feel very confident that it was not a plan for extermination. However, it was the same kind of elite-led plan for birth control that often justified itself by cleaning up the unfit. So it's not that right. I'm trying to offer a, a full defensive singer exactly, as much as to clarify how much we need to think about disability hierarchies as part of our legacy of who's been allowed to reproduce in this country. Yeah. All right. We have to talk briefly about Polly Murray we talked a little bit about Betty Friedan, who she's paired with in the book. And I think most people, because this is how it goes, are really aware of Betty Friedan and have mm-hmm. probably read The Feminine Mystique and are probably aware of the criticisms of her, of, of that book as being a really important work of power and also very, offering a very limited view that all women are white, all women are white women and that all those women are board housewives, whereas 
a third of, let's see, one third of all women were working for wages in the early 1960s, typically women of color. But I think sort of Polly Murray and what she managed to do, and you have that great quote from her about how she started to understand capitalism as a system of oppression that draws much of its strength from the acquiescence of of its victims. And that it was perpetuating the system where people needed, like black people felt like they needed to prove their worth. People who are on the bottom were like, I'm worthy. Let me climb this ladder. Like, let me be amongst you. And that the goal needed to be, what we needed to eliminate the conversation about whose life matters the most and just understand that equity is a birthright. Is that yeah, a fair yeah. summary? Absolutely. Yeah. She really brought a structural account to sexism, right? That right. it wasn't just men being mean to women, but it was actually a systemic devaluation that meant that women had less political and economic and social power. Yeah. And then really figured out how those, we talked about her at the beginning, but how those systems of power worked in tandem to delimit particularly people who have more than one identity. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me/thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. So let's talk about sort of where we're at. And I love that you also include a conversation about AOC, which seems really like we're on the Eve or second Eve of the Met Ball where she's being (laughs) blasted for even going in the first place and and sort of the problem of sort of her popularity and how she's now being held up as of this as this paragon of perfection and 
this beautiful, fiery, brilliant, no holds barred woman who we expect to like, what you talk about her sort of like Instagram living while she's cooking her bean soup, like filling us in on how power works in our lives. And like we we build these people up. And then Mm -hmm. again, going back to our earlier conversation, almost put them in a trope and then expect them to never deviate from our yeah. perception of how they need to be perfect. And perfect Optimizing is so... feminism, right? Yeah. That's what you right. call I, it? I, I yeah. really think that that's the era that we're in now. The feminism... The mainstream feminism wants to optimize women. And AOC has given these amazing interviews about how she learned to root out the optimizing imperative in herself. <laughs> that mm. she thought she always had to be the best that she could be. And then she realized that she didn't have to and just started enjoying waitressing. And then ironically, of course, once she gave herself permission to just follow her heart, she ended up being in a, you know, in a more laudatory position than she probably ever dreamed earlier. But I've been thinking a lot about the Met Ball dress um, <laughs> and also how, you know, how people, especially, you know, mainstream and, and male dominated activism, he wants to assume that to be a serious activist and a serious anti-capitalist activist in particular, like you can't have any fun, right? Like you must be very severe. Joyless. Joyless. And you certainly can't have fun with beauty or fashion or glamour or, you know, these practices that have actually been long been kinds of feminine and queer resistance, but get cast by male society as just meaningless, frivolous, like useless acts of of practice and self-making. And I think, you know, that 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 dress in some ways was really a great example of a kind of intersectional feminism of like, hey, look, I, I reject your terms. <laughs> I'm gonna one, I'm gonna bring my message to where I'm invited to bring it. And if as a New York politician, I'm invited to the Met Ball to some of the wealthiest people in the country, I'm going to accept that invitation. I'm going to bring that message. But at the same time, I don't think she's acting like by doing that, she has conquered capitalism, right? right. <laughs> she's just saying like, let's have these conversations where we can have them and let's let's have some fun in the process. Like let's create yeah. new ways of being and new ways of relating to each other that are less demanding of each other and less about a kind of, of purity politics. Yes, and rejecting of this idea of that of that optimized person. I love yeah. this quote, if I can read to you. While the optimized man runs barefoot to the office with his water bottle filled with activated charcoal, the optimized woman cries in the executive suite. When shed by the CEO, white women's tears become a commodity, an asset, and a safeguard, proof that capitalism can have a heart. The emotional feminist CEO and secures her own likability and cleanses the means of production at the same time, sanctifying runaway profits with the humanity streaming down her face. So it is, it hurts. It's true. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it hurts. So what do we do? What do you want to see? How do we start to evolve? And I think a big part of it is breaking, like the the AOC idea of breaking down these ideas of being perfect, optimized, knowing all the things, behaving, you know, impeccably with yeah. moral greatness at every step. Yeah, and those tears, right? Like I was really struck in reading Sheryl Sandberg of how much she emphasizes where she messes up, and mm-hmm. then I finally realized, like, oh, that's her ticket to still being likable. <laughs> Because yeah. she's so good at pointing out that the more a woman is successful, the less she's liked, that she's realized that 
vulnerability and mistakes are actually an asset for white women. Women of color get put in a different position where they have, you know, they're supposed to be the superwoman, like, like for black women that I talked about a minute ago. You know, but I think the, the AOC dress is actually a great contrast with this vision of Sheryl Sandberg crying in her executive suite because AOC is not, she's not engineering mistakes for us. She's not exposing right. us to us, her, her weakness in the sense that she's saying, here's how I am. I'm going to be all out and you can take it or leave it. It's a very, um, you know, it's a kind of politics that's like, that's true to her and her own sense of um, where she can gather meaning and fun and joy and just the, the drive to wake up and do this every day, right? I can't even imagine the kind of schedule that she has. Um, but it's something where she trusts herself to be able to make her own kinds of decisions, uh, whether or not like other people are going to consider it the proper thing for a democratic socialist to do. And I think that that is one I think that there are sort of two ways out these demands of the optimized feminists of today. And one is to, to be as like true to ourselves as we can, right? Even if on the socialist politician is probably not going to go to the Met Ball. <laughs> Why are we having these abstract standards that only are enforcing rigid ideological lines that don't actually help movements grow, right? It don't help yeah. us breathe and, and take joy and build coalition and spread our message. But two, I think it's a big stepping backwards. Part of a big part of optimizing is that we are asked to turn every facet of our lives into work. Right? And even feminism becomes another mm -hmm. work demand where we are supposed to be supporting our own career and the careers of other women with every breath we take. And I'm really inspired by things like the NAP Ministry Project and based in Atlanta and, you know, and other elements of environmental activism that say, you know what, like we can't actually green engineer our way out of climate destruction or capitalism. But what we can do is just slow down. <laughs> like we're yeah. not going to be able to outsmart this. It's not about working better to undo optimism. It's about de-escalating our demands for ourselves and for everyone. Well, she is a brilliant force. And I promise that if you can get through the intro and get into the meat of this book and just sort of swallow any anxiety that it might provoke in you, just the cover. I circled this book <laughs> in the sense of I put it on my bedside table and looked at it for a while before I brought myself to pick it up. I knew I needed to read it, and yet I was quite anxious about what I might find and what it might make me feel about myself as a white woman. And it was so clarifying and so helpful. It's not easy material, but it really is. And I hope you heard from her the ways in which we can start to parse and understand how these things happened and how we can ensure that they don't happen again. It's our job to continue to learn, grow, evolve and do things better. And it's not about really, in my estimation, litigating the past, condemning the past, 
cleansing our past of people who we might have deemed heroes before and now malign. It's just, I think, really incumbent on us to understand and to understand what they were doing and saying in the context. It doesn't absolve. There was a a lot of, of bad work done under the banner of white feminists, but we can't do better if we don't understand the context. So thank you for listening. I really, really hope you pick up this book. And they, I just want to leave you with this. It circles back to the beginning, but this is a quote from her, but I think this really also is important. And it, it gets to that point, you know, we didn't talk about the problem with men. We kind of know what those problems are, right? But So that's why I also think it's important not to make everything into a circular firing squad, to quote Loretta Ross, but this is important. So this is a quote from her book. White women have long been assigned the task of stabilizing society, playing housewife to the entire public sphere. Since at least Elizabeth Cady Stanton, white feminists have expanded that role into one of redemption. They gain access to white supremacist capitalist structures in part through promising to rehabilitate the structures of inequality through their presence. When that project inevitably fails and settler colonialism, corporate capitalism, or electoral politics remains as brutal as ever, it is white women who absorb much of the blame and outrage, and white men who largely escape notice. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.